Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Hey addicts, in this week's episode, we are wrapping up part two of the super intense National Forest serial killer case. Today, we are sipping some delicious iced raspberry mocha brevet. This week, we are shouting out Monica V, Christopher C, and Brendan B. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all the support that you guys have been giving us through our podcast. We love you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, you will find a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations, find some delicious coffee recipes. There is also a pretty cool donate button, and if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show, and it does not cost you anything extra. In the state of Florida, there has been a lot of discussion and case law surrounding the approach on the death penalty. Hilton's conviction has been a part of this history in the making, and we want to start off today's episode with talking about what has happened so far. There have been many appeals filed by Hilton with the Florida and U.S. Supreme Courts. As of now, they have all been denied. However, we want to cover some of these as it was part of our studies on this case and has a major impact. With that in mind, we went through all the appeal documents and proceedings and are basically now going to summarize thousands and thousands of pages here for you. Hilton's first appeal filed to the Supreme Court came from his transport from Georgia to Florida. Hilton argued to the Florida Supreme Court that his statements to law enforcement during his transport should not have been used at trial. For the reason that a review of the evidence demonstrated that the proportionality of Hilton's sentence of death was proportionate to the jury's recommendation was unanimous on March 21, 2013. The Florida Supreme Court affirmed Hilton's convictions and sentence of death. On February 26, 2014, Hilton filed a motion for post-conviction relief. On April 20, 2017, Hilton filed his second motion for leave to amend initial post-conviction motion and incorporated memorandum of law, raising seven claims. Hilton filed an amendment to the second motion on July 21, 2017. An evidentiary hearing was conducted, after which the trial court entered an order denying Hilton's motion for post-conviction relief on February 12, 2019, So there was the original appeal and two amendments with the first being filed in 2014, and it wasn't resolved until 2019. On January 19, 2016, Hilton was supposed to stand before a judge in Tallahassee, Florida, this time requesting a new trial on the basis of inadequate counsel. He never made it. Instead, on January 12th, the United States Supreme Court delivered a decision that changed the rules of the game for Florida death penalty statute. In an 8-to-1 ruling issued January 12, 2016, the court declared Florida's capital sentencing statute unconstitutional because it limited the sentencing jury to an advisory role and reserved for the judge the authority to find the facts on which it based his death sentence. This required the state legislature to rewrite the rules and suddenly Hilton had a reprieve. Justice has a funny way of working out, even for a killer as dangerous as Hilton. The challenge came from the case of a Florida man by the name of Timothy Lee Hurst, who was convicted in the 1998 murder of his co-worker, Cynthia Harrison. A Florida penalty phase jury convicted Hurst of the crime and recommended that the judge impose a death sentence. The judge agreed and sentenced Hurst to death. Hurst's lawyers challenged the decision and brought the case before the Supreme Court. In January 2016, Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor delivered the opinion of the court, quote, 
We hold this sentencing scheme unconstitutional. The Sixth Amendment requires a jury, not a judge, to find each fact necessary to impose a sentence of death. A jury's mere recommendation is not enough, Sotomayor wrote. Suddenly, all executions in Florida, including Hilton's, were put on hold as they were waiting on the Florida Supreme Court to rule in the Hearst case. Georgia Kappelman, the prosecutor who convicted Hilton, said, quote, they have to decide whether Hearst is retroactive. Basically, what this means is that is the rule going to go back to all death penalty cases, which would include Hilton, or would it begin once the decision had been made on all cases going forward, which would not include Hilton's case? Ultimately, it was determined that death sentenced inmates sentenced under death penalty schemes like Florida's where the findings necessary for imposition of the death penalty are not found beyond a reasonable doubt should be afforded relief on collateral review. This did not include Hilton's case, so he was not automatically afforded a new trial, and he proceeded with his appeals. On August 26, 2021, the Supreme Court affirmed the order of the post-conviction court denying Hilton's motion to vacate his conviction of first-degree murder and sentence of death. In a petition for writ of habeas corpus change of venue, Hilton argued that the appellate counsel was ineffective for the following reasons. One, for failing to challenge the trial court's denial of his motion for change of venue. Two, for failing to raise a judicial bias claim against Judge Hankinson. Hilton argued that Judge Hankinson belittled trial counsel and treated trial counsel differently from the counsel for the state. Three, in not raising the trial court's denial of cause challenges concerning biased jurors due to their knowledge of Hilton's other crimes and their predisposition to vote for the death penalty. Four, for failing to challenge the trial court's denial of a motion to strike the entire panel of jurors exposed to a prejudicial newspaper article read aloud by a potential juror. The article that was read aloud included details about Hilton's previous murder conviction in Georgia. Five, for not challenging the trial court's denial of a motion to continue. So trial counsel saw a continuance based on the magnitude of the case and the state's noncompliance with discovery guidelines. And six, for failing to raise the trial court's abuse of discretion in admitting into evidence charred human bone fragments found at a campsite near where Hilton was seen. Also, on August 26th, 2021, the Supreme Court affirmed the order of the post-conviction court and denied the petition of writ of habeas corpus due to the fact that Hilton had not proven any of his claims and they did not meet any of the standards and prongs imposed by the statute of his appeal. As for Hilton, well, as of the recording of this podcast, he is at the Union Correctional Institution in Union County, Florida, in maximum security under inmate number 133897, and he is awaiting his execution date and planning future appeals. Okay, so that is basically where we stand on his case with his appeal process. Obviously, we have a resolve just as recently as 2021, so there could be more information, you know, going forward, but as of now, that's where his case stands. In addition to the homicides and murders that Hilton was convicted of, he has been and is currently still being investigated in additional murders. So we're going to go through those now. On December 1st, 1994, Melissa Witt disappeared from Fort Smith, Franklin County, Arkansas. More than a month later, her body was found in a rural area of Franklin County, Officers say while the crimes are separated by years and states, their similarities make it worth investigating a possible connection. Judy Smith was a 50-year-old nurse and mother of two. On April 9, 1997, Judy and her corporate lawyer husband of eight months, Jeffrey, arrived in Boston's Logan International Airport. As they checked in for their 1.30 p.m. flight to Philadelphia, Judy realized she'd forgotten to bring photo ID. She would have to return home to retrieve her driver's license. Jeffrey had an appointment scheduled for that afternoon, so the couple agreed he would go ahead, Judy would catch a later flight, and meet him at the Doubletree Hotel where they were booked for the week. She made the 7.30 and took a cab to the hotel, meeting Jeffrey in the lobby and surprising him with a bunch of flowers by way of apology. The pair retired to their room and discussed their plans for the following day. 
Jeffrey told police Judy planned to visit two historic landmarks, Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. Jeffrey, on the other hand, would be tied up for most of the day with conferences and workshops. They planned to visit old friends in New Jersey at the end of the week, but until then, they'd agreed to let the other do their own thing by day, reuniting in the evenings. Judy was still fast asleep when Jeffrey rose early the next morning, and so he slipped downstairs for something to eat. When he returned shortly before 9 a.m., Judy was in the shower. He suggested she try the complimentary breakfast, and she playfully joked about heading down as she was, naked and dripping wet. Jeffrey laughed and headed off to the opening presentation. It was the last time he ever saw his wife alive. By 5.30 p.m., Jeffrey was back in their hotel room, as arranged, but there was no sign of Judy. Quote, I was a little concerned, but I thought maybe we had mixed signals and that she thought she was supposed to proceed to the cocktail party, which was due to begin at 6 p.m. So I went down to the room where the cocktail party was, and I kind of floated back and forth between the room where the cocktail party was and our room for the next, oh, half to three quarters of an hour, he told the Philadelphia City paper. At 6.15 p.m., he told the concierge he was concerned something had happened to his wife, and the staffer began ringing around the local hospitals. That night, Jeffrey searched the streets in a cab looking for Judy. He called police, but they told him he had to wait 24 hours before he could report her missing. She would never return, but for the next few days, there would be numerous sightings of her in eastern Philadelphia, then New Jersey, and after her body was found, witnesses would claim to have seen her alive and well in Asheville, which is just 15 kilometers from the crime scene. On September 7, 1997, a father and son hunting deer in Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina came across Judy's shallow grave. They found her near the Stony Point picnic area near Chestnut Creek at about 4 p.m. Judy had been wrapped in a blue blanket and her partially buried skeleton and bones scattered over about 100 meters by animals. Quote, the skeleton still had on long insulated underwear, blue jeans, and hiking boots. There was nothing in the pockets, no wallet, no identification at all. Buncombe County Sheriff Bobby Medford told reporters at the time. She was dressed in hiking gear and thermals, an outfit completely different from the clothes she had been last seen in, but completely appropriate for someone planning to trek in North Carolina's Pisgah National Forest, where she was found. An expensive pair of sunglasses and a blue vinyl backpack filled with winter clothing and $80 cash. A shirt was buried nearby with $87 in the pockets. Judy's family would not recognize the items or the clothes she had been dressed in when shown by police. They said Judy was rarely seen without her signature backpack, but it was bright red and nowhere to be found. Police have determined that the sunglasses and the navy and unfamiliar blue bag probably belonged to her killer. Her diamond wedding ring was still on her finger and more than $200 in cash had not been taken, but there was no sign of her wallet and no ID. Detectives classified the case homicide based on punctures and slashes to her bra, indicating she may have been stabbed to death, and the reasoning she hadn't wrapped herself in a blanket or dug her own grave. That was in 1997. Her husband was considered an improbable candidate for murder and died less than a decade later. Based on at least 12 unconfirmed sightings of Judy in the days after her disappearance in locations several hundred kilometers apart, detectives believe she may have voluntarily traveled to the area before being murdered. Detectives were mindful of the fact that just 16 kilometers from where Judy's body was found, a woman had been raped, murdered, and tied to a tree. The remains were sent to the North Carolina Medical Examiner's Laboratory. Forensic testing revealed the bones belonged to a white female between the ages of 40 and 55 and had been at the site for up to two years. But it was the revelation that the victim had suffered chronic arthritis in the left knee that would lead investigators to her true identity the medical examiner did not record a cause of death. According to her adult children from a previous marriage and other family members, Judy loved Jeffrey and the pair got along very well. The pair had met a decade earlier while she was caring for his elderly father at home while he recovered from surgery to remove a tumor from his throat. Police investigated him as a potential suspect, but could not find evidence to suggest his involvement. His alibis checked out, and he was too morbidly obese to have hiked the rugged trail through the woods to where the body was found. Sheriff Medford believes Judy 
may have wanted time out from her marriage or even tried to start a new life by heading for the hills, literally. But that somewhere along the way, she met someone who killed her. Others have theorized Judy may have crossed paths with Hilton. Officers did look for links in the time, but came up with nothing. In the meantime, the question of how Judy Smith ended up dead so many hundreds of kilometers from where she was last seen remains unanswered. October 22, 1997, Levi Frady was abducted from Little Mill Road in Forsyth County, Georgia. The next day, his body was found in Dawson Forest Wildlife Management Area in Dawson County, Georgia. Again, similar MO and possible suspect in the abduction and murder. In April 1998, Jason Knapp went missing and several days later, his car was found at the Table Rock State Park in Pickens County, South Carolina. He was 20 years old and a college student attending Clemson University. Knapp was declared legally dead in 2018. Due to similarity to his other known crimes, Hilton was proposed as a suspect, but denied any connection to Knapp. On April 15, 2004, Patrice Andrews disappeared from her hair salon called Tambers Trim and Tam in Cumming, Dawson County, Georgia, on December 6, 2005, her remains were found behind a church in Dawson County, Georgia. On December 7, 2005, Rosanna Milani, who was 24, disappeared while hiking in Bryson City, North Carolina. She was an avid hiker from Miami, Florida, and was last seen in the company of an older white man in his 60s buying backpacks from a convenience store in Bryson City. Following Hilton's arrest, the store clerk, Steve Sisk, contacted the authorities to note the similarities between her case and that of Meredith Emerson. He told the police that Rosanna came into the store very nervous with an older man that looked to be in his 60s. The witness told the police that they that all they bought was clothes and that the man said he was a traveling preacher. They found out later that Hilton stole her bank card and was trying to use it. Rosanna died from being beaten to death, arguably by Hilton. 27-year-old Michael Scott Lewis was a South Daytona resident who went missing on November 21st, 2007. There may have been a period of time where Michael was alive but unaccounted for. A couple of weeks later, his dismembered remains were found by a fisherman at Tacoma River, Ormond Beach, Volusia County, Florida, packed in black bags which had been dumped in the Tacoma River. The coroner ruled he had been dead two to seven days when found. He had been gone 16 days. The remains were not immediately connected to Lewis, with identification occurring several days later by a lab in California. His head was never located. Authorities have stated that while Hilton remains a suspect in the murder and was in the area at the time, he was not the only one. Lewis's then-girlfriend, Nelsie Tetley, who was later arrested and due to stand trial for the 2017 murder and dismemberment of boyfriend Jeffrey Albertsman, is also considered a viable suspect in the case. On December 29, 2007, Kale Bywater went missing from Athens, Georgia. She was a 29-year-old University of Georgia student. On January 11, 2008, her body was found in an Athens lake. Authorities said foul play was not involved in her drowning. Clark County Coroner Bobby Tribble says that means Kale likely was not a victim of Hilton due to the fact that her body had no signs of trauma or violence. I'm going to read you this article released by CNN on January 31st, 2008, titled Hilton Pleads Guilty, Gets Life for Killing Hiker, to paint a picture of that time. Gary Michael Hilton pleaded guilty Thursday to killing hiker Meredith Emerson and was sentenced to life in prison. Hilton, 61, wore an orange jumpsuit and bulletproof vest and sat somberly through the sentencing. He was charged with kidnapping with intent to harm and malice murder in Emerson's January 4th death. The 24-year-old University of Georgia graduate disappeared on New Year's Day while on a hike in the North Georgia mountains with her dog. Emerson's parents gave emotional statements in court. I feel that no punishment for Mr. Hilton is too great, said Father David Emerson. I only pray that he suffers immensely for his heinous acts. Susan Emerson, the victim's mother, said she was not sorry the prosecutors took the death penalty off the table. I feel like he should stay alive and slowly rot, she said, 
As far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing as justice in this case. Nothing will bring our daughter back. Dr. Chris Sperry, the state's chief medical examiner, concluded Emerson died of blunt force trauma to the head and was decapitated after death. Witnesses said they saw Emerson on Georgia's Blood Mountain with Hilton. Days later, Hilton led authorities to her body, reportedly in a deal to avoid the death penalty. Anyone's emotional reaction would have appropriately been that this defendant deserved the penalty of death, said Lee DeRaw, Hall County District Attorney at news conference following Hilton's plea. But after much deliberation, research, and consultation with other prosecutors, Durah decided a life sentence in practical terms is a death penalty in and of itself. The most appropriate course was to have this defendant take responsibility for the death of Meredith Emerson through his guilty plea today, he explained. Hilton would not be eligible for parole until he's 91 years old. He will most likely die in prison and most certainly never see the light of day again, said Durah. Emerson's family agrees with this sentence, a family spokeswoman said. Today is the last day of a very long month, but January, on its last day, is a safer place than January on its first, Peggy Bailey told reporters. There are sources of joy that will lead our families through the suffering and on to healing. Investigators also suspect Hilton in the October slaying of Irene Bryant and the presumed death of her husband, John, in Transylvania County, North Carolina, said Sheriff David Mahoney. Authorities haven't specified what evidence they have. Hilton is also a suspect in the death of Cheryl Dunlap, 46, whose body was found in December in Apalachicola National Forest, southwest of Tallahassee, Florida, according to authorities. I find that article so interesting, as I always do with our articles, because it just kind of gives you a perspective of what was going on at the time that it was written. And this one being from 2008, it just kind of gives you that perspective of all the updates and everything that was going on at that very time and how, you know, emotions were flying and stuff like that. So it's just very interesting to me. Um, But I do want to continue on with giving a couple of facts and talking about some miscellaneous topics, I guess, on this case that I found while uh, researching. So during and after his trials, criminal profilers from the FBI and agencies from across the country attended the proceedings to interview Hilton. So according to criminologist Eric Hickey, Hilton was likely responsible for other homicides prior to 2007 a claim supported by other veteran profilers who were skeptical that Hilton had begun killing at such an old age. And if we recall, this information was tied into his appeals a little bit and tied into his appeals a little bit because he had been talking to the officer during uh, transportation where he was making claims of like, even the profilers think this, da, 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 you know, he had kind of brought it up a little bit. And so it's kind of interesting to see that, yes, the profilers did truly believe that there was some other stuff going on prior to, but that would convict him more so instead of less. So that's kind of, he was trying to point towards mental health issues. We were trying to point, point towards more. There's other possible victims out there. And another thing that I want to talk about is uh, one of Hilton's old sweethearts says that Hilton once confessed to an incestuous relationship with his mother while he was a young boy. So this information, I couldn't confirm it or deny it in any way, shape or form, which is why I think it's interesting to bring it up. She brought this up when interviewed by a reporter and had, you know, made these claims that he had told her that we were never able to obviously confirm or deny. But I just thought it would be interesting to talk about because we often look at serial killers and try to determine why they started making the decisions that they made later in life or even early on to kill. And how that response is appropriate to, you know, what's going on in their lives either at that time. Like, so for Hilton, right, he was struggling in life pretty badly and had lost his job and had kind of gone off the off the rail, had kind of gone off the rails. So 
it felt appropriate for him at that time to start just like robbing people, but then he didn't want to get caught. So then, of course, he has to murder them. You know, in his mind, that's the train of thought that we can see. But then it's like, so what happened in his childhood that made him think that that was appropriate, right? So it's interesting to think like, well, if there was incest going on in the home between him and his mother, maybe that potentially gave him the ideal that these behaviors were appropriate. And also his father, we know, was like a cheating man, right? Who had multiple wives and side pieces and kids everywhere and stuff. And he was not involved in raising him. Then we know that he hated his stepfather so much, whether that be because of abuse or whatever the situation may be, you know, that he was taking him from his mother or whatever. Uh, But that was to the point that his response at the time was to shoot him with all intentions of killing him. I mean, he intended to kill at the age of 13. So it's pretty interesting to see and consider the idea of there being some sexual abuse going on in the home due to the fact that these thoughts and ideas and conclusions were an early thought that he had, you know? So I don't know if it was true or not, but I, I wouldn't necessarily think that's too far fetched. I think it's possible. But another thing I want to note is that when we do see sexual abuse to these serial killers, a lot of times they incorporate that sexual aspect of it into their crimes. And we don't have any proof that these victims had any sexual assault done to them either prior or after death. So we have to consider that when determining whether this allegation of an incestuous relationship could or could not be true. So I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. What do you think? Do you think it's something that is outlandish that she's just saying that because, you know, she wants to be a part of the story? Or do you think that it's possible that it's true? The only reason I lean towards her not just trying to get attention is based on the fact that this reporter had gone to his hometown and was like trying to just interview as many people as he could. She wasn't trying to, you know, go out there and make YouTube videos or, you know, uh, report it to their news or anything like that. Or even as far as I know, she never even reported that to any authorities. It was just like when she was asked, that was her answer. So it kind of makes me lean that way. But then the fact that those types of crimes were not his mo later on it just kind of makes me think well maybe it wasn't you know so i don't know what what do you think i think that it is possible that that happened um but i don't think it's probable and here's why so we only had this one person saying that he has he's ever said this to this one person nobody else has came forward and said that no wives co-workers therapists nobody like that has come forward and said oh yeah he said the same thing to me two i think that this it sounds to me like this was a maybe school age early adult um relationship and i feel like that is the prime time for truths to be stretched and attention to be seeked and i feel like that might be what he was trying to do is to seek attention and maybe get her attention and be like oh yeah feel sorry for me but hey let's go out sort of thing but i think it could have been true but like you said there's no like sexual frustrations in his victims there's no other people that have come forward to say that she also kicked him out of her house when he was a kid because of the attempted murder. I don't, I just don't see it. Um, obviously it still could be true because you know, that claim was made. I don't think she was like made it up. I feel like he probably made it up to her to get her attention of some sort. Oh, well, that's a good thought. So she was just relaying the information that was provided to her. He told her, and now it's just determining whether he was right or wrong, whether he was lying or not. That's interesting. Yeah, exactly. I just, I don't feel like that's, 
to me, that's kind of a weird thing to just randomly pull out of your hat, you know? Yeah, um, I agree. I just, I don't see it. I agree. I think that's a, a good conclusion. I didn't even think of that. So good, good thought on that. Okay, the last thing I want to point out that I found was another part of the interesting aspect of the death penalty for Florida. And then we'll move on into our discussion questions, I swear. I just found this and thought you would think it was interesting. So Gloria Tucker, who, if you remember, was Cheryl's friend. It was also reported that she may have been her cousin or something like that. But irregardless. So Gloria appeared for all the trial and appeal hearings. Initially, she was advocating for the death penalty to be imposed. But she actually came forward after attending so many appeal hearings and said that she thinks the death penalty should be abolished for the sole fact that it is excruciating for the victim families. So basically what she's saying is that she's having to go and sit through these hearings and having to listen to his arguments as to why, you know, his trial wasn't fair, why he should have had better representation or why he should be set free or habeas corpus or whatever he's claiming at that time. And it's hard to sit there and listen, knowing that it's possible that if this appeal is granted, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Are they going to be freed? Are they going to be given a parole date? You know, is it going to be life in prison without the possibility of parole? And if you were an advocate for the death penalty and now they're not going to die, how do you feel about that? You know, I just feel like that's a lot of emotions to go through. And she did it in so many different appearances on all of these appeals that she finally was just like, man, if he wasn't on death row, then I wouldn't be going through this. The only thing that I want to comment on that with is that even if he got life in prison without the possibility of parole or was given so many years that he was never freed, you know, if he was sentenced to 300 years, obviously he's never getting out, right? But it's just interesting because even in those proceedings, he would still have filed appeals. So it's, you know, just taking death row off the table doesn't necessarily equate to no appeals anymore. But I do know if you're sentenced to capital punishment, then you automatically appeals start immediately. Like literally the second you walk out of court, your appellate attorney kicks in and starts working on your appeal paperwork immediately because there's timeframes to that, right? So it's hard because, I mean, the appeals don't go away, but I can definitely understand where she's coming from with her experience of going to court so many times after losing her friend and having to listen to them just reiterate what happened and, you know, discuss the idea of giving the man who killed her undoubtedly any sort of leniency or freedom or chance at freedom. So I can understand how that would be like really, really frustrating as the victim's family or friend. Yeah, that's a really tough one because there's so many emotions that come with capital punishment. Like your loved one gets murdered. So you have to go to all these trials and you have to sit through days, weeks, months of trials, hear about the investigation, all the disturbing details that come with it. And then you're sitting there like, this is so unfair that my loved one is gone. And the person who took her life is not, he's sitting right here. That's not fair. He should be put to death too. But then as an average Joe human being, most people are not capable of taking somebody else's life. So then you're sitting there with that weight and that pressure on your shoulders like, oh, I'm wanting this person to be put to death, but I'm not a killer. I've never killed anybody. And so it, it's hard, It's heavy to have that on you when you didn't sign up for it. You didn't ask for it. You don't want any of this, but yet you are left with this immense pressure that you are sitting there saying, I want this person to be put to death, but in the average day, you're not a killer. So it's hard to have that sort of pressure on yourself. And so I feel like a lot of times, if they're put in that situation, and then they want revenge, because they miss their loved one, they're so sad, they're so hurt, they're angry in their stages of mourning, they're, they just want revenge and they want justice. And to them, justice looks like death. 
But then you go through all these trials, all these appeals, and you're like, oh, I can't kill anybody. Like, that's, I didn't ask for this. Like, that's not on me. I don't want, I don't want to be a killer. Then that's when I feel like their view sw switches and they're like, I don't want him to be put to death because I don't want that on me and I'm not a killer. You know what I mean? So it's like, I feel like it's really hard. I could only imagine for these families and loved ones. And I don't even know how I would deal with it if I were put in that situation. But yeah, I mean, it's an emotional roller coaster, right? When they're sentenced, if you are advocating for them getting the death penalty, if they don't get put to death, like, you know, pretty immediately over the course of time and these appeal motions and hearings, you can start to almost feel a sense of remorse and like, almost like, well, now there's going to be a second person that dies and there's another weight, you know, like, and the fact that they're being put to death doesn't bring back my loved one, you know, so I can see where that emotion may switch. But I wonder if she would feel differently if he was just put to death right away, you know, would she would she feel a lot more like closure and just be in a better spot, you know, so it's really interesting, like that burden, and that emotional roller coaster definitely shifts, I believe, over time, regardless of what your belief is. And I think regardless of what your belief is, it may be tough for you. If you were actually put into that scenario, you know, we can all sit here and say we believe one thing or the other until we're put into that scenario. And now we have to feel some type of way. And, you know, that's, that's a really tough tough call to make for sure. So I just thought it was interesting that she was such an advocate for it in the beginning and just over time was like, it's just not worth it. You know, let him rot in prison instead. So I don't have to keep doing this, which I understand, but she does have to remember that these appeals and this process would happen regardless of whether he was sent to prison for life or whether he was put on death row. So it's just something to think about. Okay, moving on into the discussion questions. I love this part. So my first one, we're just going to get this out of the way. You already know what it is. Nature or nurture? Go. Okay, this one, I feel like it's so split for me. I don't, I don't know if I'm even convinced one way or another, but for sake of argument, I'm going to just pick a side. <laughs> I, I think it could be argued strongly for the side of nature because of a couple of things, but he had killer tendencies and he had attempted murder when he was a child and my thing is, is that he wasn't, I don't think, in a bad situation. I don't think he was out on the streets having to, like, you know, fight every day for his life and stuff like that. I don't feel like he was exposed to that sort of behavior at that young of an age in his situation. So for him to result to that action of shooting your stepfather that just makes me think in that situation by itself that this is more of a nature. And to add on to that, I mean, we do know that we know that his father was not involved and was not necessarily a good man, right? Then his stepfather comes in playing this role. He didn't demonstrate positive personality traits all of the time. And also there's rumor that he had incestuous relationships with his mother. And so that being from his biological mom, who, if that's true, determined that that was appropriate, you know, so he definitely has some messed up genetics going on there. But I'm actually 
going to argue nurture on this one. <laughs> um, and the reason is, is because of kind of those things that we talked about. His environment wasn't necessarily always stable. He was in his home and then he made a bad decision when he shot his stepfather. And while he didn't press charges, he did have to go to a mental hospital twice. Once when he was in the military, once when he was younger. Then his mother wouldn't let him back in the house. So he was in foster care for a minute and like you know, going around to people's houses that would take him in. So we don't necessarily know all of the experiences that he had during that time where he was hopping around quite a bit, which was like from 13 to 18, which I think is our impressionable years. So that's tough too. And then after he joined the military, you know, I think that that was a good decision as far as like a starting decision. You know, he didn't have a whole lot going for him. So why not join the military? But then his experience there and the platoon that he was involved in and their experiences. We don't even know all of that, but I mean, the fact that they were borderline about to be killed every single day, you know, if they actually ended up having to fire those missiles, it just is to me that environment and those experiences could cause someone to go off the rails that isn't already mentally stable. So you know, if he has some mental handicaps that come from the nature side of things, and then you mix in these wild experiences, that's going to definitely build up the nurture side of things. Also on the nurture side, a lot of that is built around our social influences of people around us. And he didn't necessarily have like really good people in his life that he could depend on, you know, through thick and thin, like good friends or good family members or cousins or whatever that he could really rely on. Uh, I mean, even as he was going through his trials, I mean, his parents may not have been alive and he was a single child, so he didn't have any siblings. And, you know, there you just don't hear about any family support that he had at all in any way, shape or form. So with that being said, I mean, how would anybody feel if you didn't have anybody in your life that you felt that you could turn to or that you could depend on or that you could vent to or talk to or, you know, call and ask how something works or, you know, you just, you don't have that social influence to be successful. But I also want to say that somebody with the same exact experiences, if you potentially take out the mental health aspect of it or even include it in, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a serial killer. You know what I mean? We also have the McDonald triad that has three different traits that could be used and studied later on to maybe predict if somebody were to grow up to be a serial killer. And those three things are bedwetting, animal torture, and fire setting. And we don't have any claims of that. But I mean, the, I think the fact that he took a gun to his stepfather early on is, I, mean, I think it kind of trumps all of those things. But we just don't have any of those traits that we could have predicted, you know, so like take another human being, put them in the exact same circumstances, they may not necessarily turn up to be a serial killer. You know what I mean? So I think it's, it's really hard because it could go either way. I'm leaning more towards nurture, but I could definitely see why you're leaning towards nature. Okay, question number two. Why didn't Hilton kill any of his wives, relatives, friends, his prior employer, etc.? Okay, this is such a good question. And I feel like I have a good answer. So I feel like he didn't kill anyone that he knows or is linked to for a couple of reasons. Um, I think he didn't want the connection being brought back to him for one. And for two, I don't think that he wanted to feel anything. So if he killed like an ex-wife or a wife or an employer or anything, he might have that like remorse or sadness because he knew them. So I don't think that he wanted to have any sort of like feeling or guilt or like sadness or anything because somebody that he knows is now gone when, you know, he's kind of a loner himself. So then he would be responsible for taking away someone else in his life. And I just don't think he wanted to do that. I do think, however, though, I think that he enjoyed the pre-murder process more than the actual murder process because he liked to 
take his time and find his, the right victim. And then he would kidnap them. He would beat them. And then he had to get rid of them because, you know, they've seen his face and they've spent several good days together. And, um, so you don't like, he can't let them go now because like, then what would happen? He would get in trouble. And so he murdered them, decapitated them solely, not for pleasure, but just because he didn't want to get caught. And so I think that he liked the, the hunt more than the kill. In my opinion, he killed anyone that was in any sort of way linked to him that takes away the hunt, which is the whole appeal to him. Okay, so you had so many really good points, and I completely agree. I kind of was thinking, okay, you know, just to avoid being caught, if you start killing people around you, they're going to connect you to them. And then as you're going into it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about all of those things. Not to mention, like, he may have had prior knowledge that the people around him didn't have the resources that he needed. They may not have a lot of money or a proof of his, his lifestyle in the forest or something like that, you know? So I definitely agree with the fact that he enjoyed the pre-murder as opposed to the actual murder itself. I completely agree with you on that. Really good thought on that one, Casey. Okay, number three. Is he ever going to come forward with a full confession about his involvement on all of his crimes? Ooh, that's a good one. I think if he does, and big if, if he does, it'll be like on his deathbed or they'll find like a letter or something after he's already passed. I don't think he's going to just come up with this information. Okay, and you're still in the shine in all of these discussion questions, so I want to throw my thought in there on this one for you. Um, something else that I thought of is that I hope he does because it gives the victims and their families answers, you know, and I think there are so many unsolved murders out there and with the amount that he's currently being investigated for or has previously been investigated for their you know, with the MO that he has, it leaves it open to interpretation, I think, too, right? Like, there's many people that go missing in the forest when they go on a hike. Was he responsible for that? Could have been. You know what I mean? Easily. So it's easy to jump to the assumption that he's involved in all of these. And so if you have a missing loved one or even somebody that was found but no answer to their death or reasoning of how they became deceased, you know, it's easy to just attribute it to him. But, like, I would want that closure to know for sure that it was him, you know, but the problem that you had brought up that I think is interesting is the fact that he is getting up there in age, right? So, I mean, he could die just of natural causes while he's sitting in prison right now, but, you know, before being executed. But also the reason that I believe that we're going to have a hard time getting anything out of him is that he's currently going through so many appeals and going through that process. So you're not going to give a full confession when you're also going in front of the judge to try to be like, no, I'm great. Look, I had a bad attorney. I had, you know, whatever I should have, this shouldn't have been involved in my trial and all these kinds of things. And you're trying to reduce your sentence or even get it amended or, or reduced all the way down, you know, I mean, whatever. The point is, is he's definitely trying to get off of death row, right? Regardless of what that means, whether that means life in prison or, you know, that he actually gets a possibility of parole at some point or something like that, because that would be the ultimate goal, right? Freedom would be the goal. But then he's not going to turn around and make these confessions about like, oh, but I've killed all these other people that you guys haven't even found yet. You know, they're not, I don't think we're going to see that from him. And so I guess my answer to this, is he ever going to come forward with a full confession is I hope so. But his appeals are going to have to be all the way up. And I think that the only other way outside of that is if, you know, he became ill and like you said, was on his deathbed and it was like a deathbed confession. So I agree with you on that. But I definitely wanted to throw in the thought that I had about the fact that he is still going through his appeal process and that like us sitting here hoping for these confessions either will never come or it probably won't be anytime soon. Unless it's a deathbed confession, like you said. Right. Yeah, no, I could definitely see that. I agree. Okay, this last discussion question is a little bit involved because the question is, is he responsible for any of the possible victims? If so, which ones and why? If not, why not? So this is talking about the possible victims that we had previously discussed, right? 
And so in order to determine which ones are and are not involved, I'm just going to bring each of them up and then we can discuss whether we think they're involved or not and why or why not. Okay, the first victim that we mentioned that was a possible victim of Hilton's is Melissa Witt. And I'll tell you my thoughts on this one and then you can tell me whether you agree or not. I actually don't think that she is a possible victim of his. And the reason is, is because there are not enough details that link him to this murder. Um, and one of the first ones that stick out in my mind is that it wasn't even in a national forest. So her body was found in a rural area, but not necessarily in a forest where he, you know, seemed to thrive. And she was many states away. I mean, she wasn't in the same area that he was. And so, I don't know. I mean, I understand wanting to look into it as like a possible lead into this investigation. And maybe trying to understand his MO would help them through investigation get closer to the actual killer. I don't personally believe that Melissa Witt is one of his victims. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think that she is. I could see, again, like you said, why they want to investigate it. But for me, um, with the details that we do have just right now, I don't see it. But I could be wrong. And that would be great because then we would know. But I don't I don't I don't think so on her. I agree. And I think it's If we have more details, I might change my mind. As of now and what we have, I'd say no. Okay, the second possible victim that we listed is Judy Smith. What do you think about this one? I don't think that he's responsible for Judy either. Um, I feel like it's just, it's too different um, from what he usually does. And I don't think that he would just randomly switch it up for one victim. I agree. And I think on top of that, uh, of her not being a likely victim of his, one of the other things that makes me think that is the fact that there were so many valuables and money that were left behind. Now, granted, her bank card and her ID was not there, but also they weren't able to determine that her bank card was ever used after the fact either, you know? So the killer could have just taken that hoping that she was unidentifiable and didn't leave, you know, her identity, all the stuff linking her to her on the scene. So just to give him like a little bit more time, you know what I mean? But I think that um, the fact that there was money left behind and her ring was still on and all that kind of stuff, I think it's completely outside the MO of Hilton because that was his main reason for killing was to get the resources that other people had, you know, so I can't see him leaving behind any money, you know, especially considering he was taking the victims that he was linked to. He was taking their bank cards, going to ATMs and withdrawing as much cash as he could. That's what he needed. You know, that was why he killed. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I think that unfortunately that's like a big red flag for me. So I, I agree. I don't believe that she's one of his victims. Okay. The third possible victim that we had listed was Levi Frady. I could see this. Um, I could see it, but I'm not a hundred percent convinced yet. I think I would need to have more details about the case, but I could see how the, or why they're wanting to link him to it. Yeah. I actually think that this is the first one that I feel is possible. Um, it's within his realm of victims and the location and everything like that. So I'm convinced that that he should be investigated. But what scares me about that is that if he is responsible for that murder, that was in 1997. So that means he's responsible for a murder as early as 1997 when the murders that we know about were in 2007. So if that's the case, how many other people did he kill over the course of that decade between 1997 and 2007? You know, that's the scary part for me on that one. Right. Yeah, I know that is scary. I hope that's not the case. I know I do and I don't like I want closure for that family but then it it's like okay that kind of opens a can of worms you know that I don't know that we're ready for so yeah that one that one's a tough one I think it's possible uh but he should definitely be investigated for sure I think we can agree on that okay the fourth victim that we had listed is Jason Knapp I think 
I'll tell you that I don't, I don't know. I think maybe not because of the sole reason that Hilton denied his involvement. So remember when they picked him up and he was just doing lots of confessing right in the beginning, right? And he wasn't really shy to admit the fact that he did commit the crimes and the murders. So if that's the case, why would he deny his involvement in Jason Knapp? The only reason I could see that is depending on the timeline of when they actually asked him. You know what I mean? If they asked him while he was being investigated for the other murders that he was convicted of, then I don't see how that could possibly be related. Because why would he deny that one but admit the others? But Mm -hmm. if they asked him whether he was involved in that as they were going through like an appeal or something like that, of course he's going to deny that, you know? So I, I think it's very much dependent upon the details of that case and that investigation and how they found that out. I mean, he was discovered at a state park, so it's possible, but I don't know. The fact that he denied involvement kind of like throws me off a little bit. I don't know. What do you think on this one? See, I'm iffy also, but for different reasons, because (laughs) I'm like, okay, so he denied his involvement. So to me, that's like, "Mm, maybe he did it. But then again, like, yes, he was found at a park, but it was a state park, not a national park. So that makes me think like, "Mm, maybe not. But then again, you know, maybe he wasn't only exclusively killing at national parks. Maybe it was just parks in general, just the outdoors. So I'm iffy also, but for different reasons, I guess. And I'm not sure on this one. Agreed. Definitely need some more details and investigation tactics on this one. The fifth possible victim that we listed was Patrice Andres. This one is kind of interesting to me. I don't know. What do you do? You, I'll let you go first. Do you think that she was one of his victims or no? I don't. Um, I don't think so because I don't really see <laughs> any connection or any similarities between the MO. Um, so I'm not really sure why this is the victim that he might be responsible for. I personally don't see the connection, but Again, I don't have all the details of that case. So, I mean, maybe I've, I looked into it more, maybe. But from what I have right now, I'm going to go with no. I don't see any any similarities in this one at all. Yeah. And I mean, not only is this not really a matching MO, that's pretty ballsy, right? To go into a store where there's more people around and there's the public. You know, it's, he's not hiding behind the bushes. He's not able to jump out. And also, there was no report of her salon being robbed, which again was his MO. It wasn't in a national forest. I mean, for me, I just, I don't even know how they came up with this possibility of him being linked to this. But yeah, I think this is super far-fetched to include him as a suspect on this case. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay. Then the sixth victim that we listed was Rosanna Milani. Oh my gosh. I don't know how he has not been charged for this yet. I don't either. He's absolutely responsible for this. I could not agree more. He, this is him all the way. I don't, I don't know how he hasn't been convicted of this. It's the same time, area, MO. There were witnesses. I, don't, I feel so confident that he was involved in this. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it either. I don't know if this is coming up later. Maybe if they're saving it for his appeals work or something. I'm not sure, but this is him. A hundred percent. In my opinion, this is him. Yeah. They better convict him of this and do it fast before he dies, because this is ridiculous. He's a hundred percent responsible for that. The seventh possible victim that we listed was Michael Lewis. What do you think about this one? Okay. This one like is such a curveball for me. Cause I, at first was like a hundred percent. This is totally Hilton. And then they come in with the girlfriend and that she has already killed one of her ex-boyfriends in the same fashion. It makes me feel like it was probably not Hilton and probably the girlfriend. (laughs) Um, But I don't have all the details on this case either, but I think that I wanted to say yes. (laughs) I really wanted to say yes, but I don't. I'm going to say no. Yeah. And you know what? I think that in order for me to be convinced that Hilton has anything to do with this, that girlfriend or ex-girlfriend or whoever the hell she was would need to be 
100% excluded from the investigation. Like they determined that she was in another country at this time or, you know, that the DNA didn't match or something. I mean, there has got to be 100% without a doubt she was not involved before you even look at Hilton for this, in my opinion. Yeah, no, completely. I completely agree. It would be too ironic, I feel like. Yeah, that she dated two people that died the exact same way, but she was only responsible for one of them. Yes, both decapitated. It's insane. Like, I don't, yeah. Yeah, there's no way. It's hard because Hilton did decapitate his victims as well. And again, the idea of that would be because he wanted for them to not be identified. But yeah, I there's no way. Okay, and the last possible victim that we listed here today is Kale Bywater. What do you think about this one? Um, I didn't really get the Hilton vibe on this one too much. I think I could be persuaded, but like right off the bat, I don't I don't see it. Well, and not to mention that the coroner even said that there's no foul play and Hilton left plenty of that in his path. So I don't think that he's responsible because there was nothing that he gained from that. You know what I mean? And he was very much in it for the personal gain. And I don't think there was anything that he gained from her death. So I don't believe that this one can be attributed to him either, which is unfortunate. So we just went over eight different victims and we're only super confident about one and had two others that were like, yeah, maybe, you know, definitely do some more investigative work on that. And the rest of them, I'm thinking, no. I know, it's so strange. I would like to be able to give these victim families some answers and some potential closure, but I just, I don't see it on the majority of these. And I don't know how they decided that these were the victims to link him to, considering I'm sure there's plenty others in those national forests, you know, that could be linked to him and they're they're not even on this list. So I thought that was really strange about how many of them he was investigated for and i mean i don't even think that he has anything to do with it you know i thought that was really odd i would i thought oh yeah all of these for sure all of them and then i'm going through and i'm like no 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 man maybe no no i mean i couldn't believe it yeah it's super strange i just i feel like they're trying to maybe just close cases you know so they're like oh well me this one might be maybe so we'll just uh we'll put him in we'll we'll put his name on it as potential and get back to it. (laughs) And honestly, I am all for the investigative side of it. You know, if you want to look into him and be able to conclusively rule him out, that's great. Maybe that, you know, one step, like I said, in the, in one of the victims was, you know, if you start researching and trying to understand Hilton, maybe that will help you then link to who the actual murderer is by getting into the psyche of Hilton. If it was anything in, relation to what the actual murder was, you know, I mean, it's possible, right? So I'm not saying to decrease investigation tactics, or even trying to minimize the investigation. And you know, definitely, if you have a missing person, and then you turn up with a serial killer anywhere in the vicinity of the country, you're going to be looking at that. And I completely understand that I would do the same thing. But I just wish we had a better list that truly are a lot closer to the victims and MO that Hilton had so that we could conclusively say, you know, we feel a lot more confident about a lot, a lot more of them because I do believe that there are other victims for sure that he hasn't been convicted of because I agree with the profilers of them just being like, yeah, you don't just up and start killing people one day, like in your sixties, that doesn't happen. I completely agree. So there's more out there. We just have to find them. Right. No, I agree with you. Okay, so those are all of the discussion questions that I had for you today. Do you have anything that you want to add to any of the questions that came up or any other additional questions? Or is there anything that you want to say? No, I think we covered everything. This was super intense for me. And I there was so much going on. And it's crazy because this was actually not that long ago. And like we had talked about, like he's still doing appeals. So it's crazy. Like you hear about this and you think, oh, back in the day. That wasn't that far away. And it's just crazy to me. No. So I think we got everything and I am just thankful that they found him and locked him up and he is no longer lurking in the forest. Yeah. And able to hurt more people. I completely agree. Okay. Attic. So we will post a picture of him on our social media outlets 
and also on our website. So in order to find these discussion questions, you're going to head to Facebook, search for the Crimatics pod page, scroll down, go ahead and hit that like button if you haven't done so already. You'll scroll past our Amazon link and go to the discussion questions for episodes 21 and 22. In the comments, let us know what you think and how you would answer these questions. If you're listening to this and think you have more input to add or some ideas about some of these answers or something, we would truly, truly love to hear it. We look forward to interacting with our listeners and value your guys's opinions and thoughts. So head to Facebook, scroll down and answer these questions. It's going to be question number one, nature or nurture. Question number two, why didn't Hilton kill any of his wives, relatives, friends, or prior employer? Three, is he ever going to come forward with a full confession about his involvement in all of his crimes? And four, is he responsible for any of the possible victims? If so, which ones? And if not, why? And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode on the National Forest serial killer who could easily be mistaken for Waligi from Mario Kart. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.